This is the Ultra Running History Podcast, and I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks! Wow! Thanks for coming! Okay, buddy. I'm the fire marshal in these parts. You can't have all these people in your basement. Everyone out! Now! But, but these are my fans. Out. Oh, well. This is episode 13. In this episode, I will continue telling the story of the history of the endurance riding sport. (laughs) And I will cover the birth of the Western States Trail Ride. You might ask, what does the history of endurance riding have to do with ultra running? There are many close parallels between the two endurance sports. Ultra runners should feel indebted to those of the endurance riding sport who had the vision to establish some early 100 milers for runners. The trail 100 miler inherited many of the same procedures of aid stations, course markings, trail work, crews, medical checks, and of course the belt buckle award. Part one covered the very early history of endurance riding By 1955, the sport of endurance riding had existed in America for more than 40 years since the initial competitive 1913 ride in Vermont. The sport was called endurance riding for those who participated in it for the early decades. This episode will cover the very significant birth of the famed Western States Trail Ride, also known as the Tevis Cup, which inherited practices from the older endurance rides, especially the Vermont 100 Trail Ride. On January 20th, 1955, a very historic meeting was held in Auburn, California. Representatives of three Auburn and Sacramento County riding clubs met to discuss plans for a three-day endurance ride event. They planned for a typical three-day, 100-mile endurance ride, but it was also proposed that there be a 100-mile, one-day endurance ride on the last day. The three-day weekend was proposed for August. Legendary Wendell Roby was at this meeting and was the person who brought forward a proposal for a one-day, 100-mile ride. He was a well-known businessman and outdoorsman in Auburn, California, where he helped establish winter sports in the Sierra. At this historic 1955 meeting, there were concerns if a one-day, 100-mile event was practical and possible. The majority of the riders thought it was a crazy idea. Roby was a very vocal participant in the discussion. It was discussed that, quote, old-time horsemen on fairly frequent occasions were known to have ridden 100 miles or more in a day's time on one horse. Several horsemen were present who reported having ridden 72 or 86 miles to a day's destination, and in their opinion, the added miles for 100 miles would not have been detrimental to their horse or themselves. A trail named Auburn Lake Tahoe Riding Trail was chosen for the event. About the trail, the newspaper said, quote, Horsemen familiar with the route claim it is the best riding trail to cross the Sierra, which is left with natural surroundings and without paved roads and automobiles. For the 100-mile one-day event, it was proposed that this ride use the same, quote, 
strict veterinarian qualifications, and similar endurance contest rules to those developed for the Green Mountain Trail Ride in Vermont, and similar well-known established endurance races. Roby later held up the Vermont ride and its organizers as proof that endurance rides were fine for both riders and horses. Thus, it is historically important to understand the establishment of the birth of the Western States Trail Ride had important roots from the well-established existing endurance rides of that time. It is also totally historically inaccurate to state that the organizers of the Western States Endurance Ride invented the sport. After this initial meeting, Roby was enthusiastic about this event and went into action to help. As with most important historic events, legend and folklore grew out of the birth of the Western States Trail Ride. The same thing would happen after the Western States Endurance Run was established many years later. Folklore can take on a life of its own as it is told and retold. One well-established story states that during 1955, Roby had a discussion in a bar with an associate about whether a horseback rider could cover 100 miles in a day. He got riled up about it, vowed to prove it could be done, accepted a wager, and just did it one day with four friends. Well, perhaps he did have such a discussion, but the ride was put in place as part of a well-planned event involving three riding clubs. Contemporary newspapers called Roby one of the organizers of the ride, not the founder. But as Roby's legend grew, he was mistakenly given all the credit for organizing the first ride and later called the founder. The truth is that there were many forgotten individuals who organized the first event. In 1955, Roby was not the chairman of the event, but there is little doubt that he was the main individual who pushed for the one-day, 100-mile event and helped make it happen. He also was the driving force to keep it going. There's also a lot of folklore surrounding what would be called the Western States Trail. The Western States 100 website states erroneously that the trail extends all the way from Salt Lake City, Utah. It does not, neither then or now. Some stories state that the trail was used by the 1860-61 Pony Express riders. It was not. The Pony Express trail went on the other side of Lake Tahoe and didn't go to Auburn. Some stories say that Roby did historical research and discovered the trail. He did not. A significant character in Western States history has mostly been forgotten. Back in 1930, Robert Watson, a Lake Tahoe lawman, located and mapped out an old immigrant minor trail that was used before the railroad arrived. He also constructed the granite monument near Immigrant Pass. The trail was used by immigrants, many heading to the California gold mines, and by miners traveling to and from Nevada. Over the years, this trail would be used frequently by horsemen and was known as the Auburn Lake Tahoe Riding Trail. Before we get to the first ride in 1955, I need to point out that it really wasn't the first ride event on the old trail. On September 22, 1931, the native sons of the Golden West from Auburn sponsored a ride on this 100-mile historic route that Watson had recently mapped out. It was open to all, and there was a great deal of planning for it. 
The riders were led by Wendell Roby. The others were Dr. Conrad Briner, former mayor of Auburn, Earl Lukens, Bill Patrick, a community leader in Tahoe City, Matthew Langstaff of Forest Hill, the supervisor of the district, and Lavelle Shields. The main purpose of the 1931 ride was to place markers on the trail so it could be easily used by riders in the years to come. The riders started in Auburn and on the first night camped at Michigan Bluff after about 36 miles. On the second night, they camped at Robertson Flat, where Watson, age 77, joined the company to guide them. They took a day and a half more to ride from Robertson Flat to Tahoe City with Watson. The route was rough, at times no more than an opening through the tall pines over and around huge boulders and narrow ledges. They spent the night camped at Needle Peak, and the next day rode slowly up to Squaw Peak. Watson placed an American flag on the monument. Roby's wife and other women had ridden up to ride the last miles with them. Watson later said, quote, The trail is marked so clearly that parties desiring to retrace the steps of the hardy pioneers would have no difficulty in following it from Auburn to the lake. Roby commented that it was a beautiful trip and presents some of the most naturally wonderful views in California. When the weary riders arrived at Tahoe City after three and a half days, they were greeted by a large crowd. Lukens was very stiff and sore and had to be helped dismounting by rolling up a bale of hay for him to step off onto. The crowd roared in laughter. Shields reported that the men had spent 39 hours in the saddle. He said, quote, The trail was completely obliterated by brush and boughs and we had to search out the trail at many points to keep the horses going in the right direction. Over the years, Roby never forgot that experience on that trail. During 1955, Roby worked hard to help organize and advertise what they called the Tahoe to Auburn Trail Ride. He was a master promoter. Lavelle Shields was the chairman of the ride. Shields, if you remember, also participated in the 1931 ride. For the big event, there were three 100-mile events. A three-day ride with 68 riders, a two-day ride with 34 riders, and a 24-hour ride with five riders. The five one-day riders were Wendell Roby of Auburn, Dick Highfield of Auburn, Nick Mansfield of Reno, young 17-year-old Pat Sewell of Sacramento, and Bill Patrick III of Sacramento. They departed from Tahoe City on August 7, 1955. At 5.20 a.m. a siren sounded and the riders were off to travel on this historic trail. The riders proceeded to Squaw Valley and climbed up the steep rocky trail to Emigrant Pass. As they crossed the upper regions of the middle fork of the American River, Highfield's horse slipped on a granite slab and went down, injuring its shoulder. When they arrived at Robertson Flat, about mile 33, a veterinarian checked the horse and determined that it couldn't continue on, so Highfield dropped out. The remaining four riders continued on. When the trail became difficult, they dismounted and led their horses ahead. On sharp inclines, they would follow behind, holding the horse's tails, letting the horse pull them up the slope. Mansfield, the owner of Western Stables in Reno, said, Wendell was confident and he had his mind set. He very definitely knew he was going to make it. When they arrived at Michigan Bluff, about mile 60, around dusk, 
The vets declared the horses fit to continue. The other two riders, Sewell and Patrick, were exhausted and had to be coaxed to continue on. Night travel on the ridges was pretty scary. Mansfield said that in the dark he didn't spend any time looking down because in places there was too much down on both sides of the trail. As the riders rode near the old mountain quarry at about 3 a.m., they were surprised to meet a young man running on the trail named Harold J. He trotted along nonchalantly in place with the horses for a mile or so and then shot ahead of them at a fast run to appear again about an hour later, keeping an easy pace with the horses which were traveling at a mountain jog. It turns out that he was a long-distance runner spending part of the summer in the mountains to get in shape for competition. Jay, who had no trouble keeping up with them on the rough, dark trail, said he would run and guide them the rest of the way with his flashlight. He was the first trail runner to run with the horses on the famous trail. Mansfield and Roby reached the finish area ahead of the others. Mansfield invited Wendell to be the first to cross the finish line. They finished with a total time of 22 hours 45 minutes, with about 19 hours in the saddle. The riders had covered the last 40 miles in the dark. The runner, Jay, asked Mansfield from Reno what he was going to do. He replied, I'm going to lay down in the stable and go to sleep. Jay insisted that Mansfield go home with him. He said, when he showed me my room, I was dead asleep almost before I got into the bed. Wendell Roby kept the ride alive and took it over. He renamed the Auburn Lake Tahoe Trail to the Western States Trail and organized a company, the Western States Trail Ride Incorporated. For the second year, he called the event the Pony Express Ride. He knew that the 1960 Winter Olympic Games that would be held at Squaw Valley would bring significant attention to the area and he hoped to capitalize on it with the 100-year anniversary of the Pony Express. An editorial criticized Roby with fraud on plans for a 1960 Pony Express 100-year commemoration because the Pony Express never passed through the county or on the Western States Trail. Roby countered that he knew mail was delivered between the mining camps using the trail before the Pony Express was established and felt justified. That year, in 1956, Nick Mansfield added a 50-mile Pony Express ride leg from Reno to Tahoe City. Riders then changed horses to participate in the Western States Trail ride for a total of 150 miles in two days. Real mail was carried with the approval of the U.S. Post Office to be delivered from Reno to Auburn for 15 cents plus postage. For the 1956 ride, 20 riders started, including Roby, who carried the Pony Express mail pouch. One of the 1956 riders, Jack French, rode down in one of the canyons but had to drop out far from a checkpoint. He found a hermit in a cabin back in the hills and spent the night with him. Jack said it was the most interesting experience of his life. He sat up all night listening to the tales of the Old West and the mining boom in that area. Days later, French and his daughter would go back to take supplies to the hermit, and they became close friends. Roby and his niece, Ina Drake, were the first to finish in 21 hours and 6 minutes. Bill Hussey was actually the first rider to arrive in Auburn, but he got lost in the city for an hour trying to find his way to the fairgrounds. 14 riders finished, including 3 women. Sterling silver gold-mounted one-day buckles were awarded for the first time. 
1957, the name of the ride was changed again and was very long. Roby still wanted the Pony Express connection. It was called Western States 100 Miles One Day Pony Express Ride. The Reno Mayor, Len Harris, planned to ride that year and left a wake-up call with the hotel clerk for 4 a.m., but he didn't wake up until 7 a.m., missing the start at Tahoe City. He hired a helicopter to take him to Squaw Valley in hopes to catch up, but the riders couldn't be located. He then drove to Forest Hill in Roby's car, again hoping to join the group to at least complete the ride with them. But he was unable to rent or buy a horse, so he drove to the finish at Auburn. Roby finished again in first with 20 hours and 25 minutes. Two youngsters finished that year, David J, age 12, and Gwen Smith, age 13. In 1958, 28 riders started at Tahoe City. 17 finished, 7 from Nevada and 10 from California, including 8 women. Roby set a new speed record of 20 hours, 20 minutes. It leaves you to wonder if anyone dared trying to beat Roby. Starting in 1959, the ride also started to be referred to as the Tevis Cup when famed horseman Will Tevis, a San Francisco businessman, introduced a perpetual trophy that would be awarded to the winner each year, or more politically correct, to the first to finish. The trophy was named after his grandfather, Lloyd Tevis, who went to California to join the gold rush in 1849. Involving Tevis wasn't just a nice gesture by Roby. With the Winter Olympics arriving in 1960, it was a calculated marketing strategy to help the ride get international attention. As Tevis got started marketing, he said the ride was, quote, the greatest horse epic and yardstick of horsemanship I've ever seen. I think it would be a magnificent event for the Olympic Games and if we made it an international event, maybe we could even invite the Russian Cossacks. He proclaimed that the ride is, quote, a test where you can judge a man and a horse. You can do it without hurting your horse if you're a real rider. I can foresee the day when we'll have a runoff contest to limit the number of riders in the event. By 1960, the Tevis Cup was growing up to be a respected endurance ride with 42 starters. The marketing efforts were starting to work. Movie star Clark Gable was signed up to be one of the judges. With more riders, the ride needed more volunteers. Why not get the Forest Service involved to generate goodwill? Roby contacted the Sierra Rangers asking them to serve as guides and observers. Ten wanted to participate and did some serious training. In order to compete in the ride, horses had to pass a veterinarian physical prior to the start and at at least four other inspection stations. The first three stations included one-hour mandatory stops for rest. In order to win the Tevis Cup, the horse must be absolutely sound at the finish, otherwise the cup was awarded to the next finisher. Each year, the list of riders grew along with many spectators. The historic town of Michigan Bluff became a party site, attracting politicians and celebrities. Auburn, California was not the center of the endurance ride universe as some have mistakenly believed, or at least not yet. The Vermont Trail Ride, put on by the Green Mountain Horse Association in Vermont, was still the premier endurance ride and the oldest ride in the country. 
Because of extreme popularity of this endurance ride, the field was limited to 75 riders. They traveled over hard and soft roads, up steep hills, over rocky stream beds, and down gullies. In 1963, 74 riders and horses participated in the 100-mile ride from about 15 states. In the early 60s, there were also about 30 other endurance rides held each year across the country. The Western States Trail Ride was just one of many endurance rides. Unlike other endurance sports in those early years, women were very prominent in these rides and were equal competitors with the men. In the 1961 Tevis Cup, the winner was a woman, Drew Barner. She set a course record of 16 hours and 2 minutes, which included 13 hours and 2 minutes riding time. The riding time started to be saved as course records for this ride that wasn't supposed to be called a race. The ride wasn't without controversy. In 1961, past presidents of the California State Horsemen's Association called for an end of the Tevis Cup trail ride. They said the ride was pointless and inhumane and endangers both horses and riders. Roby defended the ride against all critics and said, most persons have no idea of the capabilities of the western horse. He is a working horse, built for stamina, bred for endurance, and capable of feats far beyond the ordinary casual riding done today. Armed Humane Society officials would even come to the veterinarian checkpoints. Roby said, let them take a look at these well-conditioned horses and then they will go back to picking up stray dogs and cats. To counter concerns about the treatment of horses, for several years during the 1960s, a minimum finish time was established of 17 hours total time. You could not finish faster than 17 hours. Getting lost was a problem. In 1963, a rider failed to arrive at the first check station and deputy sheriffs were sent out to search. The rider was eventually found and was hospitalized because of exposure and dehydration. Starting in 1964, because of the increased number of horses, groups were established for staggered starts two minutes apart. The Tevis Cup was starting to be referred to as, quote, the toughest marathon horse ride in the world. In 1968, the minimum finish time of 17 hours was abolished and it again became a race. Well, they don't like to call it a race. But a new record of 11 hours and 18 minutes riding time was set by Bud Darty. Many riders trained on the course, so their horse was familiar with the course. One rider mentioned, When Dolly and I reached a spot near the end of the trail, which we had ridden before, she knew she was going home. It was almost like she was smelling the oats. She really whipped out of there. Horses did suffer at times and gave out. Bud Darty once had to walk his horse eight miles to Michigan Bluff to drop out. With the heat, horses would collapse at times and vets would need to ride in to administer IVs. Tragically, over the years, horses have died falling off of cliffs. Others have slipped, survived, and returned another year to compete. Some died of heart attacks. It was rare and was a freak accident when it occurred. No rider has ever lost their life, but there have been serious injuries and broken backs. Only the fastest riders finished before dusk. Riding at night was the highlight of the entire experience because the temperatures cooled and the horses had renewed energy. 
Flashlights were carried but usually not used because the horses could see much better than their human riders. As they trusted their horses, they avoided dangerous situations. Not too far away, in 1968, a one-day, 100-mile ride was established in Nevada that was at first named the Annual Nevada All-State Trail Ride. It was later renamed to the Virginia City 100. This ride was the first 100-mile endurance ride to pattern the event closely after the Western States Trail Ride. The course was a giant loop ride, including some significant climbs on rough trails, and the race awarded belt buckles to those who finished in 24 hours or less. In 1970, the 16th annual Western States Trail Ride was very popular and included international entries. That year, there were 200 entries and 169 passed the pre-ride veterinarian tests. With the bigger field, the start was moved to Squaw Valley because development over the years at Lake Tahoe had greatly reduced the amount of open space there to accommodate the start area. That year, 93 finished within 24 hours and received the 100-mile belt buckle. The Tevis Cup had entered the big time and was receiving international recognition as the premier endurance ride in the world. Rides were starting to be established that used the same format growing pains and continued public concerns needed to be addressed in the sport. Stay tuned for the next part that will tell the story of the birth of the Western States Endurance Run and the Old Dominion 100. With that, this is Davy Crockett and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.